That is Northern Lights Cannabis Indica. No, it's marijuana. Marijuana is a memory lost drug, so maybe you just don't remember. I would remember. Well, how could you if it just erased your memory? That's not how it works. Now, how do you know how it works? A private equity firm decides it wants to invest in cannabis. Do acquirers look at us and go, oh, we can get a really strong base in New England? Or are we the acquirers and going, you know, what we really like our recipe, let's expand. How exactly does someone become chairman of the Cannabis Control Commission? How she called me and found me, I, I still to this day don't know, but she called and said, you know, I've got this interesting job, are you interested? And I said, not in a million years. I went home that night and I said to my wife, you'll never guess what I heard about today, but I'm not doing it. And she said, are you crazy? This is the adventure of a lifetime. How could you not do it? And here I am. This is The Language of Business, a podcast designed to inform and inspire entrepreneurs and anyone thinking about a startup. Learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work from experts who've been there and done that. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Gregory Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. This is part two of our look at the business of cannabis. We go to a private equity firm that decided to invest in cannabis production to see how it works. Then we get the legal lowdown on controlling cannabis from the chairman of the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission. Here's Greg Stoller. Don, thank you. Having gray hair is a term of endearment for most industries, but is that true of cannabis and CBD? We're on location here in Rhode Island with Jeremy Bomberg, the CLO of Canwell, and welcome to Language of Business. Thank you, Greg. Pleasure to be here. So does having gray hair add or detract from your role? I think it adds. What I have is a, is a more of a classic business background, okay. which is not entirely common in this industry. So it, where I have been employed and with the people who I work with, they appreciate my ability to bring business to this new industry and help to bring the sort of processes and methods that will help the uh, company take shape and grow. Why did you get involved with Canwell? It was an opportunity presented to me as a group that uh, a newer, newer private equity group that's building its presence in this new industry. I love the fact that I'm part of a new industry and in helping to build businesses. So the opportunity to do so and do so with a variety of, of companies is just enormously appealing. And why Rhode Island? It's one of the ones the, the, the private equity group has bought into. So we own this group here in Rhode Island. We own a group in Massachusetts. So I help with both because I look at portfolio operations. So much of this industry is regulatory driven. How different are the regs between Rhode Island and Massachusetts? Substantially. I mean, frankly, I think you've seen one state for, for cannabis. You've seen one state for cannabis. Right, okay. So Massachusetts is very tightly regulated, heavily regulated, adding more all the time. Rhode Island is starting to add more, but they have been a little bit lighter on the regulation to begin with. So it's, it's a little bit easier to do business here in Rhode Island than in Massachusetts. So much of private equity outside of cannabis and CBD is investing in it, building up and selling it off. Is that Canwell's business model? It remains to be seen. Uh, we are really looking to build a regional presence. Don't know exactly how long that will take. I'm not on a time frame that says get it done in the next two years. But obviously we want to grow as quickly as possible, take advantage of the market and see, see how people respond. Because do, do acquirers look at us and go, oh, we can get a really strong uh, base in, in New England? Or are we the acquirers and going, you know, what we really like our recipe, let's expand. Are you going out it alone or via syndication? There are investors who back us up. It's not really syndication, but it is really there's our private equity group represents a number of, of individuals who are particularly interested. What would you consider to be a home run or even better, a grand slam? 
I mean, ramping up the sales as quickly as possible. In Massachusetts, uh, we're allowed to have ultimately three medical and three adult use dispensaries. I'd want to see all those cooking with gas, as it were, in Rhode Island. There are only three dispensaries. There are going to allow another six next year. Uh, we cannot get a second one by the laws of the state. But I think to really build up and be the strong player in Rhode Island, which frankly pulls from other states as well, would be, it would be a great thing here as well. We started off the segment talking about the importance of having gray hair. How transferable are all of your business skills directly to this industry? Oh, I think absolutely. Now, I'm more of a prototypical generalist, and I have been for a long time. So I understand something about a lot and a lot about some. And so what I found is, you know, I'm not beholden, although I'm an operations guy, I am not strictly beholden to process. I'm strictly beholden to what makes the most sense for the business to help it grow. So my ability to look at situations of uh, bridge strategy and tactics and to look at how do we apply business thinking to make this model work, uh, no problem at all. But does that resonate well with a younger sect of people? Selectively. There, uh, there are many who, who won't because I'm an old guy. But there are some who go, look, I, we really appreciate your experience. And in fact, I have a, if I may, I have a son who's uh, in his 20s and is a business owner. And I asked him when I got into this, how do I keep from being seen as an old guy? <laughs> and his answer was, don't talk about age, but do talk about your experience, because that's why you were hired. Interesting. If you could give one piece of advice for someone who wants to break into this industry, either as a grower or operator, what would it be? Get to know someone else in the industry. I mean, networking is, is key at this point, because I mean, we're, we're seeing with any position we put out, we get lots of resumes. Well, what, what differentiates them? But I think, so it's one hand you look at it and go, oh, someone like me may look at it and go, interesting background, I'd like to take a chance on them. Others will look at it and go, not the square peg for the square hole. So in some sense, you need to get in. And it may be, if you can, you get in sort of at the, at the entry level and work your way up. But also if you have other skills, those skills are needed in the industry because a lot of companies, they may not even realize it yet. But if you've been a professional and done other things in the industry, then there's going to be a place for you. What do you think the hottest area of investment in cannabis and CBD is right now? Oh, I would say having to do with, curiously enough, I'll say with extraction. Now, that's a, a, perhaps a curious statement given that right now in Massachusetts, all vapes are, are banned. Right. And extraction is the means to generate uh, the, the uh, product for, for vaping. But it's really where the market has been going for a long time. In California and in the West Coast, they've seen the percentages shift dramatically from people who buy flour to people buying concentrates. And it is, it will be a cleaner way to ingest marijuana. There are questions right now, and I absolutely understand and agree that what is going on, what is causing the, the illnesses, the vaping-related illnesses. Is it a material? Is it product? Is it uh, batteries and power? It's, it's not yet known that needs to be understood so then the industry can get back to making clean products. Do you see the most typical exit strategies for Canwell being as IPO, company sale, or merger? Sale or merger, and probably, probably merger, which, I mean, also could take the form of a sale, really. Right. But in some, in some means, I think joining forces is, is the way to go. Although, and that was the spirit of my question is, do you go at it alone or do you try and join forces with somebody else? Well, you're gonna try to join forces, but that said, since the product can't cross state lines, I mean, you're really, you're probably leveraging. And, and that was my next question to you, exactly. Right. Yes. So any sort of combination is going to be really leveraging overhead 
in many ways because each state has to prepare and deliver its own product. So regional is really going to be a conglomeration of sort on a state-by-state -state basis as opposed to having your headquarters somewhere in New England and taking advantage of interstate commerce. Correct. You can't take advantage of interstate commerce, but what we could do is if one of our companies has unique or quality products, we can get that recipe, bring that to the other state. Obviously not the, the genetics and the, right. and the product that they use to make it, but at that point we can reproduce what's done and have that consistency. So you can get the genetics from state to state, but then from that you will have to grow it a particular way to get the same result as the original grower and then process it the same way as the original processor to yield the same product. But you can't do it all in one place and then ship it out to 50 states. Jeremy, thank you very much. You're welcome, Greg. Jeremy Bomberg, COO of Canwell here in Rhode Island. Back to you, Don. Thanks, Greg. Next up, the chairman of the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission gives the legal lowdown on controlling cannabis when the language of business continues. Our sponsor is Boston University Questrom School of Business. In partnership with EDX, Boston University Questrom School of Business is now offering an online MBA a top-tier business education available to learners around the world. It's a two-year program with a tuition of $24,000, far more affordable than typical on-campus programs. Interested? Get full details at bu.edu slash questrom. You're listening to the Language of Business podcast, look at the business of cannabis. Once again, here's Greg. Don, thank you. Cannabis is all about money, but what happens when government and big business collide? We're on location at the Cannabis Control Commission with Chairman Steve Hoffman, and welcome to Language of Business. Nice to be here. Thank you. How does one become the chairman of the Cannabis Control Commission? I think it's just my good luck, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the way this worked is that uh, the law created a five-person independent commission jointly appointed by the governor, the treasurer, and the attorney general. There were five commissioners, um, and each of us had different backgrounds or were required to have different backgrounds. The attorney general appointed somebody that had a public safety background. The governor appointed somebody that had a public health background. The three of them, Governor, Attorney General, and Treasurer, jointly appointed two other commissioners, one that had a regulated industry background and one that had a social justice background. The Treasurer got to appoint the chairperson, and the chairperson had to have a business and startup background. Um, how she called me and found me, I, I still to this day don't know, but she called and said, you know, I've got this interesting job. Are you interested? And I said, not in a million years. <laughs> and she said, well, look, you know, just think about it because this is pretty unique. And I said, okay, I'll think about it. I went home that night and I said to my wife, I said, babe, you'll never guess what I heard about today, but I'm not doing it. And she said, and I'm taking out some of the swear words. Of course. <laughs> she, she said, are you crazy? This is the adventure of a lifetime. How could you not do it? And here I am. Was there any magic to the beginning of your term in September of 2017? I don't know that I'd use the word magic. I would use the word terror. <laughs> um, we got appointed September 1st of 2017. We had no staff. We had no money. And we had no office because we weren't part of any but other But besides agency. that, everything was good. And, of course, there's no instruction manual or roadmap. Um, but there was legislation that had some very, very explicit and quick mandates. So we had to have our initial regulations done by March 15th. We had to start... A, 2018, so literally uh, four months or six months after we started, we had to start accepting license applications on April 1st. We 
couldn't approve applications until June 1st, but uh, it literally was just nonstop. And again, there was no instruction manual. There's no roadmap, thank God. There were a couple states like Colorado and Oregon and Washington that went before us, and we learned a lot from them. They were incredibly helpful, but each state is different. The law is different in each state. The demographics are different. So we got some help from those guys, but we literally couldn't lift and shift. We had to do it ourselves. And it was, it was terrifying, and particularly for someone like myself who had no public sector experience at all, had no experience working with, uh, with the media and the press. It was, it, was, it was terrifying. I mean, it was exhilarating. I was uh, as energized as I've ever been in my professional career, but it was terrifying. To what extent has your rich business history, especially as a consultant, either yeah. helped or hindered you in the past couple of years? Oh, I think I think it's helped because you know basically this is a startup um, and it's a gigantic startup and it's starting up an industry, not just a, an individual company. It's also a startup that's being done completely in the open with a lot of interested uh, parties, uh, you know, uh, commenting on every step along the way. But it is a startup, and and you know when you do a startup, you recognize you know that you've got to just kind of roll up your sleeves and and do it, and you know and job descriptions and job type, everybody just pitches in to make it work and building an agency from scratch, standing up an industry from scratch. I think my experience doing startups was extraordinarily helpful. But most startups pride themselves on speed and being nimble, yes. etc. Yeah. Can a government agency be either nimble or speedy? I, I think that there are constraints. So you know, you probably couldn't compare us in terms of uh, nimbleness and, and speediness with a private sector startup. But I think uh, compared to other government agencies, I'm actually pretty proud of our track record. And I think we have been nimble and we have been quick. And I think again, part of it is, you know, when you start with five people and no staff and no money, I, I am really grateful to the other commissioners um, and. We just, you know, as I said, rolled up our sleeves and just said, what do we need to do? We assigned, divvied up the tasks, and we just got started. And, you know, while we have been criticized for how long it's taken, when I look at other states, when I look at the startup of medical marijuana in this state or the startup of the, of the gaming commission and the casino licensing, we've been pretty quick. And so I'm, I'm, I think we've done it the right way. I think, you know, we haven't rushed, but we're moving um, and we're nimble. Um, so I, you know, I think that by... Private sector standards, you might not call us the, the most nimble, but I think by public sector standards, we, we really are. And I'm, I'm proud, as I said, of, of the way we've, uh, we've gotten this thing started. But following the same startup sure. theme, how do you define success? We define success, uh, you, know, we, you know, one of the things that, that we did transfer over, that I did transfer over from the private sector, is we wrote a mission statement. I mean, every company I've ever been with has a mission statement. The difference here is we wrote the mission statement in public, because <laughs> we, we can't do anything right. behind closed doors. And so we went through like four or five iterations where I drafted it. It, then we discussed it in public, edited it, I went back and, and, and rewrote it, and we did this four or five times. But we got, I think, a really good mission statement, and the purpose to me of a mission statement in private or public sector is it's guideposts, particularly when you're going down a path where, as I said, there's no road signs, there's no instruction manual. I think that the mission statement has given us those guideposts, and it's done a very good job. The first sentence of the mission statement says, honor the will of the voters. The voters in November of 2016, by a close margin, it was 57, right. 40, uh, 53-47, the voters said, we want adult use recreational marijuana available. We want it to be safe, we want it to enhance public safety and public health, but we want it available. So honoring the will of the voters is kind of the way we measure ourselves. We, we put in the mission statement some other things though as well. We want this to be a diverse industry, to look like Massachusetts in terms sure. of diversity. Um, the legislation is very explicit about that we have to help those from communities that were harmed by marijuana prohibition be full participants in the, uh, in the industry. We also put in some operating principles that said we were going to be transparent. 
transparent. Everything, you know, the open meeting law requires only that we can't discuss things in, in private, but we do everything transparently. We have a, a, a database, we have a, a website that every piece of information is available to anybody in terms of, you know, what the licensing queue looks like, who's gotten licenses, regulations, all the minutes of our public meeting. So we have tried to operate differently than other state agencies. And so we have in the mission statement, I think a set of parameters by which we can measure our performance. What are your thoughts on quality versus quantity, number of locations versus the profitability of those individual locations? Yeah, I mean, I want this to be a, a successful industry, but I'm not rooting for any one participant. I just want the industry to be stable. I want people to be able to make a good living on it. So we're, I wouldn't say we're focused on the profitability of any particular enterprise. We are, as I said, focused on a stable industry. We said from day one, the five commissioners said, we're going to get this right, we're going to do it right. And that has always been the operative um, objective. So we, we really don't have any kind of speed targets or any kind of quantitative, how many stores do we want open by a certain period of time. We just want this to work for the citizens of the state. We want this to be right. And that's been, our, that's been kind of our mantra the entire way. Looking at other states in comparison yep. with Massachusetts, how would you rate Massachusetts' success so far on a 1 to 10 scale? Probably an 8. I mean, I don't think we've been perfect, but, but I do think we've avoided two kinds of mistakes. I mean, one is the, the states of procedures. I feel really bad. As, as terrified as I was, I can only imagine what it was like to have had my job in Colorado. Right. Because they had nothing. Right. They had, they had no, nothing no to look other, at. No, no other reference and, and point. So, right. so I think they did a phenomenal job, but they've been incredibly open with us about saying, here's some things that we wish we could have done differently or better if we had another chance. And we learned from uh, some of the mistakes of Colorado, Oregon, and Washington, and I think we, for the most part, avoided them. Uh, there were other states that went legal at the same time we did, California, Nevada, Alaska, and Maine, I think, if I have that correct. And I think we've done a better job. Respectfully, they've had their own challenges. Again, each state and each set of laws is different, so I'm not being critical. But they did some things that we chose not to do. Um, California kind of opened the doors day one, January 1st, uh, right. they, and they just opened the doors and had hundreds of stores. They didn't have a licensing system in place at that point. They did not have a seat to sale inventory tracking system in place. And we said, we're, we're not doing it until we're ready. Um, so we're not, we, had, we didn't do it as fast as California. I think we did it better. Nevada opened up very quickly as well. They had stores open. They had no inventory on the shelves. So, you know, we said, we're going to do it right. And there was a public misconception that there was something in the law that said retail stores had to open in Massachusetts on July 1st of 2018. The fact of the matter is, that's not in any piece of legislation, but that nonetheless is a public expectation, which we didn't meet. We opened our first store in November of 2018, but we've never worked towards, we have to have X number of stores open by Y date. We always have worked, we're gonna do this right. And my term is five years, and I think it's five years for a reason, which is this is not gonna happen overnight. Sure. It's gonna take a while, and even though we now have a fully functioning industry with 30 plus retail stores open, we know we have a lot of work to do. So it's gonna take a while, and, and that's, I think, right. When people were saying, well, how come there are no stores open on uh, July 1st, 2018? My answer was, I don't really care what this industry looks like on July 1st of 2018. I care what it looks like on July 1st of 2020, 2021, sure. 2022. And I think that's been the way we've kind of operated. What do you believe is the single biggest area that could derail either the store's success or your success from a commission? You know, I, I think the federal prohibition is, is a heavy weight that we're, all, we're bearing. I, mean, I think it has a specific consequence in that banks are very leery of entering the industry, as I would be if I was the sure. CEO of a bank. I'm not sure that I'd want to enter this industry when you... Now, the fact of the matter is that the federal government has never taken action against a state-licensed marijuana establishment, nor bank servicing the industry. No guarantee they won't, but they have not to this point. 
but I completely understand the reticence of banks to participate in this industry, and that is a problem in two respects. One is just from a public safety standpoint. You know, you've got a cash business. You've got people that are walking out the you know, front of their uh, right. stores, locking it up at 9 o'clock at night with a satchel <laughs> $50,000 of cash over L there. Literally, yeah. And every criminal in the state knowing that. Right. Um, now, we have three banks that decide to participate. So on our current scale, uh, we're fine. Uh, there, there are banks that are handling cash for all of our establishments, but as we expand the number of establishments, we need more banks, and that's a real problem because of the federal prohibition. Steve, thank you very much. Sure, my pleasure. Commissioner Steve Hoffman, Chairman of the Cannabis Control Commission here in Boston. Don, back to you. Thanks, Greg. And that's our podcast this week. There are links to all our interviews on the show notes. Go to lobpodcast.com. Our sponsor is Boston University Questrom School of Business. The Language of Business is available wherever you get podcasts. And if you subscribe and give us a rating, it'll be a huge help. Or just tell a couple of friends. We now have downloads in 62 countries, 34 states plus D.C. and 7 provinces. Social media is by Jennifer Powell of Excellent Writers. Consulting producer Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Direction, audio editing, and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of SomethingYouShouldKnow.net. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, thanks for listening to The Language of Business.